Well, we are in a series for the summer called Knowledge of the Holy, and uh, we're just exploring the character of God through the Psalms, and our psalm this morning is one of the great Psalms, Psalm 139. So hear God's word to us, Psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. You knitted me, <clears throat> you, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there is any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. The word of the Lord. Father, we ask this morning that you would search us, and know us, and reveal to us any grievous way. Lord, you know us better than we know ourselves. And Lord, this morning we ask that as we seek um, to know you, we would come to know ourselves as we truly are made by you. Wherever we find ourselves this morning, Lord, in faith or out of faith or on the margins, struggling, perhaps doubting, Lord, help us to know that you are the God that is always moving towards us and not away from us. And so this morning we ask that you'd move, move near to us in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. This is how John Calvin opens the Institutes of the Christian Religion, which is his great life work, two volumes, one of the most influential books of theology in the Christian tradition. True wisdom 
has two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of oneself. You cannot pull these apart, which means that to know yourself as a human being, you have to know God. But it also means that as we seek to know God, we will also be engaged at a level of knowing that is transformative to ourselves. Uh, The knowledge of God is not like the knowledge of a scientist engaging the world, studying weather patterns or animal species. God is not an object. We can talk about God in objective terms, but as human beings, as we move towards God to know God, God is also knowing us, and we come to know ourselves. These forms of knowing, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self, are intertwined. What Calvin says um, at the beginning of his institutes runs really throughout the whole of the Christian tradition. The most articulate and perhaps beautiful expression of this you find in St. Augustine's Confessions, which are his spiritual autobiography. And there's a phrase that Augustine says which really captures the whole of the book. And he prays, the whole book is a prayer, Lord, let me know myself. Let me know you. Lord, let me know myself. Let me know you. Augustine in, in that book is searching for himself. He's trying to make sense of himself prior to being a Christian and now one. But really, it's a search for God. It's a pursuit of God. He prays later on in, in the book, let me, let me know you, you whose business it is to know me, to vouch for me and to plead for me. Let me know you the way I am known. You, my soul's excellent mate, go into her and possess her without her having a spot or wrinkle. To you, Lord, to whose eyes the deep chasm of the human conscience is laid bare, what would be hidden in me even if I didn't wish to confess it to you? I could hide away from myself, but not myself from you. I could hide away myself, but not myself from you. For Augustine, the journey uh, inward was a journey upward. And the journey upward was a journey inward. To know ourselves is to know ourselves being known by God. And this is precisely what Psalm 139 is about. It is about the knowledge of God and the knowledge of oneself. This psalm is one of the most beloved psalms in the Psalter, which is written or contributed to King David. And it gives us an incredible um, picture, a very personal but glorious picture of the character of God. God is all-knowing and all-present. And with, it's easy with all the poetic power and beauty of this description of God to miss or overlook what seems to be the occasion of this psalm. This is a psalm of testing. It's a psalm of testing. David here seems to be struggling with his own identity. And it is likely occasioned by enemies, people who are attacking him and questioning his character. And he seems to be having a crisis of self-knowledge. And he petitions God to vindicate him and to help him understand himself. And those verses, 19 through 22, those jarring verses, where he speaks of hating with complete hatred those who hate God, um, somehow seems connected with what he's struggling with here. But I want you to take note of how this psalm opens and how this psalm closes. O Lord, you have searched me. 
and known me. And it closes with, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. David is really petitioning God to search him and to know him. And he is seeking self-knowledge of himself. But the way he's doing that is by reflecting on the character of God. As David comes to see God for who God is, he then has more clarity about who he is as a person before God. And so the very first thing I think that this psalm teaches us and relates to us, it's such an essential truth. It is this, is that God knows us better than we know ourselves. God knows us better than we know ourselves. And the reason that God knows us better than we know ourselves is because he's omniscient. God is omniscient. God, omniscience means to be all-knowing. But God's omniscient isn't simply like that of a supercomputer that just has all the information about the universe and knows how to remember it on call. God is not like the ultimate Jeopardy contestant that just gets all the answers right. God's knowing is of a whole different order. It is a knowing that penetrates even the deepest regions of the human heart and the human soul. Look at what David says in the opening verses. O Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, you know it altogether. Behold, Lord, you know it all together. God knows our whole history. Everything we've ever done. Everything that, that we've ever said. Everything that has been done to us. Everything that we've experienced. Everything that's happened. God knows. In the Proverbs, it says that the purposes of a man's heart is like deep waters. The purposes of the human heart is like deep waters. In other words, it is unfathomable. It is so hard to discern and to figure out uh, our own heart, our own purposes, our own intentions, what makes us tick. And I, I feel this very sharply in my own life. I often wonder, why am I feeling this way right now? <laughs> or why did I say that? Or why did I do that? I sometimes wonder about the motivations of my heart and my actions knowing that there are things that are hidden from my sight. There are reasons I do things that I don't fully understand. I know that I am a mystery to myself. Augustine, again, captures this truth uh, quite beautifully. He says, a human being is, is such a huge abyss. That's the idea of a depth. A human being is such a huge abyss. You know the number, Lord, of the hairs on my head, and you know there, and there's no subtraction from that number. But it's easier for you to count the hairs on my head than the moods and the workings of human heart. It's easier to count the hairs on our head than the moods and the workings of the human heart. And yet God not only can count the hairs on our head, He counts and He understands all the moods and the workings of the human heart. He knows every thought that has passed through our minds. He has seen every emotion that we have felt. He knows every mood, and He knows why we feel the way we feel and experience things the way we experience. 
See, we are largely opaque to ourselves, but to God, we're like a window that He can see through directly and clearly. He understands all. And not only does God know everything about us, God knows us so completely, He knows what we will say before we even say it. He knows what we will do before we even do it. That is how well God knows us. Now, um, rather than being comforted (laughs) by God's complete, intimate knowledge of himself, David actually seems to be overwhelmed by it. He feels discomforted and uneasy by God's penetrating gaze. And he says in verse 5, he says, you hem me in. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. The idea in the Hebrew of being hemmed in has a sense, one of the connotations is to be besieged on every side. It also evokes the idea of a potter that uh, is working, right? That God is like building up clay walls around him. He's hemmed in. He's pressing me in on every side. His knowledge, his gaze, I cannot escape it. It's a little bit unclear whether David thinks this is a good thing or a bad thing. It's probably a little bit of both. It's unnerving and a bit scary that this God can just see and penetrate into the very depths of who I am. He sees everything. I'm completely exposed. He knows things about me that I don't know about myself. And that's a bit scary. And this is why David then shifts when you look at verse 10. He shifts to begin to consider, what would it mean for me actually to escape this gaze, this presence? Is it actually possible to escape God's presence? And he says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and the dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. And your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for the darkness is as light with you. Why does David want to flee from the presence of the Lord? It is, I think, that he feels so totally and completely exposed and vulnerable to God's all-knowing gaze And so he wants to, in a sense, find shelter. (laughs) He's looking for shelter. He's overwhelmed, right? He's overwhelmed. These things are too wonderful for me. But then he immediately realizes, even as he is writing and praying, that there is just no part of him that could ever be hidden from this all-knowing God. There is no place that he can go. There is no retreat in the universe that will allow him to escape the presence of the Lord. If he ascends to the heavens, God is there. If he goes down to the pit, to the grave, to hell, God is there. If he goes to the furthest reaches of the east, God is there. If he goes to the furthest reaches of the west, God is there. Even if he hides himself in the dark, God is there. And not only is God there in the dark with him, but God has 20-20 vision in the dark because the dark's like light with God. There's no escape from the gaze of God, from the presence of God. So David begins reflecting this psalm 
on the omniscience of God. God is all-knowing. And then he shifts to the omnipresence of God, that God is all-present. To say that God is omnipresent means that there is no corner of the cosmos in which God is absent, that he is not present. He is present to his whole creation. And in reflecting on omniscience and omnipresence, we are confronted with what theologians call the incommunicable attributes. See, there are communicable attributes and incommunicable attributes. Communicable attributes are things that we can share in our character and participate in. Things like love, holiness, mercy, justice, righteousness. These are all attributes of God that we we can share and participate in. But the incommunicable attributes, God is omnipresent. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's present everywhere. That God um, is omnipotent. He has all power. That God is, uh, has self-sufficiency. We call it aseity. He is self-existent. Nobody created God. That God is eternal and infinite. These are attributes and aspects of God that we cannot part- share, in a sense. We, don't, we can never possess them. And David is confronting us with these, that even though we cannot possess these attributes, they set the conditions, if you will, for what it means to be in relationship to God. Again, our natural tendency as human beings is to relate to God as if God were a person like us, just uh, more powerful and more knowledgeable and without a body. But our instinct is always to relate to God as if God is an object in the universe, like one of us. And David, in, his, in this psalm, is telling us with, with a bit of exasperation, but also just sheer wonder, that to be in relationship with God is incomparable to anything else. Absolutely incomparable to anything else. David tries to imagine what it would mean to flee from the presence of God within this world and realizes that there is no escape because God is not a person like we are. He's not a creature. You can't just distance yourself from God. You can't just cut yourself, cut God off. He hems us in with his knowledge and he hunts us down by his spirit. And David realizes this. I think in our own modern age, our secular modern age, we think about escaping the presence of God in very different kinds of ways. The way that we seek to escape the presence of God is we simply decide that God does not exist. We reject belief in God. Unbelief and atheism is the way we escape as as modern people. We flee from the presence of God this way. But again, the situation is no different from David. Simply um, stating or even embracing in an inward way the non-existence of God does not mean that God ceases to exist. Nor does that mean his presence and his reality vanishes from our lives. I think what's interesting about so much of modern atheism in particular is again, it it has a a view of God like God is like a person or an object or a creature, but just really big and invisible. 
And the question is, who is the God whose existence you have rejected or have walked away or questions? Who is this God? Because likely the Bible also rejects this God as well. This is probably an idol. Um, I love the story of I love the story of the Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin. In 1961, he made the first um, um, launch into space and orbited the Earth. And uh, Nikita Khrushchev, who was the premier of the Soviet Union at the time, said of this, he said, when Gagarin flew into space, he didn't see God there. When Gagarin flew into space, he didn't see God there. And uh, this is in 1961. And Time Magazine asked C.S. Lewis to write a response to, to this exchange. And Lewis writes this marvelous essay called The Seen Eye. And at the heart, Lewis objects to the depiction of God. The problem is that the Russians think that God um, is like a being among other beings in the universe. And that because they didn't see God up in, the, in space like they would see you know, a galaxy or a sun or moon or stars, then, then God doesn't exist. But Lewis raises this question, what if knowing God is very, very different from knowing objects in the universe? He says, looking for God or heaven by exploring space is like reading or seeing all of Shakespeare's plays in the hope that you will find Shakespeare as one of the characters or Stratford as one of the places. Shakespeare is in one sense present at every moment in every play but he is never present in the same way as Falstaff or Lady Macbeth. If God does exist, he is related to the universe more as an author is related to a play than as an object in the universe is related to another. That is precisely how David depicts the presence of God and the reality of God. God is like an author related to a play. He is, related to, he is present throughout. And yet he can't be identified simply as an object for us to, to see and to, to object to or to reject or to see or not to see. You cannot deny the existence of God. It's like trying to outrun the presence of God in the universe he created. It's simply impossible. There is this haunting presence of God and we can distract ourselves from thinking about it. We can deny its reality. Uh, we can doubt its existence, but it will show up in a thousand different ways. And eventually at your death, you will be forced to think again, <laughs> very clearly. Trying to escape the presence of God is, is a little bit, through, through unbelief, is, is a little bit like a child that goes into a room of people and is shy and embarrassed and puts her hand over her eyes so she can't see anybody believing that if she can't see the people in the room, then they can't see her. But that, that's basically what happens. That is what we do. We think, well, I don't believe in God, or I'm moving away. And it's, it, we're, we're not, this is like the child, right? All you're doing is obstructing your own view of God. <laughs> but he can still see you. Why... Um, All attempts at declaring our independence of God break down. God gets us coming and going. 
And David shows us that the only way you can flee from the presence of the Lord is actually to turn towards him. That's the only way you can flee from God's presence. It's actually to turn towards the Lord. And the only way to get away from the awful sense of his presence is to turn and face him and move towards him. And that's when we discover the face of God is very different, perhaps, than the one we wanted to flee from. See, David, rather than letting God's all-knowing gaze and his inescapable presence lead him to despair, he lets it move him to wonder and praise of God as his creator. David has spoken of the omniscience of God, God is all-knowing, of the omnipresence of God, God is all-present. And now he speaks of God now as the omnificent one. This is a new word probably for some of you. God's omnificence, which means all-creating power. For God to be omnificent means he has all-creating power. He is the creator. And now David reflects on his own identity, his own sense of self and person in the light of God as his creator. And here are some of the most beautiful words ever penned in the entire Bible. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none. Why, why would we want to flee from this God? A God who so lovingly created us in his image. A God who handcrafted us in the womb of our mother, a God that is so attentive to the details of our life that he knows the number of hairs on our head, that he has written down and recorded everything about our lives even before our lives have happened. Why would we want to escape the loving presence of this God? The knowledge of God as our creator, all-powerful creator, must be the basis of our sense of dignity, and worth and pride as human beings. Isaac uh, Denison, the novelist, said that pride, true pride, we'll call it holy pride, pride is faith in the idea that God had when he made us. Pride is faith in the idea that God made, had when he made us. David's discovery of God as his creator, rather then diminishing or disempowering him has the opposite effect. It empowers him with dignity. He discovers that he has dignity and worth as a human being by virtue of the fact that God has handcrafted him like a potter and made him who he is. David and ourselves we are not an accident of the universe that simply emerged without cause or explanation. Human beings are not an accident of billions of years of random processes. If there really is no God, if all is time and chance, what can we say very strongly about the meaningfulness of life? 
If there is no God and nature advances red by tooth and claw, and it's the survival of the fittest, what is the basis of human dignity? Where do we ground our heart's desire for justice? How do we explain our desire for love and belonging? Can we make sense of this, of a universe without a God, without a personal God? We are God's special creation. Regardless of the exact process that God employed in order to get us here, know this, we are God's special creation, His workmanship, created in His image, precious to Him, all human beings, all human beings, universally. And this applies as well to the circumstances of our birth. Whether your parents wanted you or not, God wanted you. I know some are born unwanted by their parents, but know this, my friends, God wanted you. Your very existence means that God wanted you, God desired you before you were even conceived, before our unformed substance took shape in our mother's womb, Our lives were already written in the book of God, written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none. God wanted you. We live in a culture that teaches us that we can know ourselves, we can find ourselves independent of God. But in the biblical world, this is a complete contradiction to what it means to be a human being created in the image of God. To flee from the presence of, to flee God is to flee from oneself. (laughs) To flee from God is to go away from yourself, not towards yourself. We only come to ourselves when we come to the God who made us. Again, Augustine, most famously, as he opens his book on the, the Confessions, Lord, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. This is the central truth of Psalm 139. It is that to know, the only way to know oneself is to know oneself as you are known by God. The only way to know yourself is to know yourself as you are known by God. God knows us better than we know ourselves. But this search is not in one direction. It's not as if God's just there waiting for us lovingly, waiting for us to come to him. It's not all on us to find ourselves and as we seek to find God. The sense that runs through this whole psalm, and it runs through the whole Bible, is that God is hunting us down. (laughs) He's hunting us down. God is pursuing us. God is seeking us out. He's always moving towards us, even as we're seeking to move away from him. This is what grace is. This is the meaning of divine grace. Grace is God's loving pursuit of rebellious creatures he has fearfully and wonderfully made. That's what grace is. God is loving pursuit of rebellious creatures that he has fearfully and wonderfully made. And the invisible presence of God in his pursuit of us, we see become visible in the person of Jesus. I want to remind you in close of just the the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus and the Gospel of Luke. 
You remember Zacchaeus, he was a tax collector, very wealthy man, um, but despised by the people. And Zacchaeus hears that Jesus is coming to town and he wants to get a view of Jesus. But the crowds are lined up and he can't get through. People are boxing him out because they don't like him. And he's too short to be able to see over the crowd. So what he does is he climbs up into a tree. And as Jesus passes through, Jesus looks up. He says, Zacchaeus, come down, for I must stay with you in your house today. Jesus knew, see, Zacchaeus thought he was looking for Jesus, but Jesus was looking for him. Zacchaeus was wanting to see Jesus, but Jesus already saw him, and he knew him. He knew him by name. See, and then Jesus says to the crowd that's amazed, he says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And it's the same thing going on in our sacred reading all those stories about Jesus calling, the disciples following. He's like, what are you looking for? What are you seeking? And Jesus, at time and again, shows that he has superior self-knowledge, knowledge of who these men are that are seeking him, knowledge of all of us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Friends, he knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows you by name. And he wants, just like Zacchaeus, he says, I want to come and stay with you. <laughs> I want to come and stay in your house. Invite me in. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we, we give you thanks that you, you are the God who is seeking us out lovingly and graciously to come and to dwell with us, to be present with us as a loving Father and Son and Spirit. We give you thanks, Lord, for this psalm and for the grace that you have bestowed upon us in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.